Hi everyone, Laszlo here. Before we get started with today's episode, I'm excited to announce the launch of my new audio courses covering the history of Chinese philosophy. If you've ever been curious about Chinese philosophy and want to develop a comprehensive understanding or be able to explain to your family or colleagues the differences between Confucianism and Taoism or What's in the Book of Changes, one of the most widely published books in the world, these courses are for you. I cordially invite you to go to avid.fm slash Laszlo to take a look. I'll have this link in the show notes. My thanks to all of you, and I hope you'll enjoy these courses. Thanks for coming back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode, part four in our series, examining the Taiping Rebellion. Although the Taiping Rebellion was the biggest headache or historical event that the government had to deal with in terms of its destructiveness and loss of life, it's hard to separate this event from the bigger picture happening in China during the 1850s and 60s. I'll try to stay as close to the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom as I can, but if uh, no one objects too strongly, I'd also like to offer up some of the events happening in the background, so I beg your indulgence if I stray off course a bit. We finished off last time with the fallout of the Tianjin Incident. Hong Xiaoquan managed to wipe out all of his political rivals, but by doing so, all decision-making was now concentrated in his hands, and as I indicated last time, the Heavenly King was not what you'd call a well man. His two elder brothers, Hong Renfa and Hong Renda, now served as his closest aides, and all the accounts of their abilities that I read were not what you'd call flattering. Sure Da Kai saw right away what was going on, and not wanting to leave his fate in the hands of these two scheming brothers, he took his army and left town, heading to the west of China, towards Sichuan province. And how he ends up, we'll get to that in good time. He was the fifth and final king, and the only one left standing of all those original sworn brothers of Hong Xiaochen, once Shi Dakai leaves the picture and carries on the fight in central China and later in Sichuan, there will be two new Taiping generals who will lead the troops in most of the key battles in the Jiangnan region of China. And these were Li Xiaocheng and Chen Yucheng. Dysfunctional as the top leadership of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom may have been in late 1856, they weren't going anywhere for the next eight years. The Qing military now consisted of the Green Standard Army, who served as the rank and file, and they were supplemented by the Eight Banners, who were eh, sort of like a Green Beret and considered more of an elite fighting force. And they were ably assisted by Zheng Guofan's Hunan Army and Li Hongzhang's Chu Army, as well as a number of other Yongying private armies. Even all of these resources combined were having trouble taking down the Taipings. The Taiping fighters were armed to the teeth and were fanatical and merciless in the way they fought in battle, as rebels with nothing to lose tend to be. And up to now, most of this fighting, it always came down to hand-to-hand -hand combat, smashing, slashing, and stabbing in the heat of battle. You know, I don't think I mentioned this or not. One of the things the rebels did, going all the way back to Guangxi during the Thistle Mountain days, to show their contempt for the Manchus, 
while the men refused to wear their hair in the style dictated by Dorgon back in 1645. The men within the Qing Empire had to shave the front of their head and then keep the hair on the back long and braided in a queue. The Taiping men, 86 the queue, and wore their hair long and loose, Kaiser Guo style. That was one of their trademarks, these long-haired fighters. In these period TV serial dramas and in paintings, that's how they're portrayed. For the first part of this episode, I want to discuss the events leading up to, during, and after the Second Opium War. The outcome of this event had a direct impact on not only the outcome of the Taiping Rebellion, but the remaining years of the Qing Dynasty as well. To hear this well-known story once again, especially in the context of today's current state of affairs, is as lugubrious a trip down memory lane as one could take. This tale of... Lord Elgin, Harry Parks, John Bowring, Michael Seymour, Jean-Baptiste Louis Gros, and others is a tough bit of history to listen to. Let me tell it quickly and try to stick within the context of the Taiping Rebellion. I mentioned previously, 1854, the British were all gung-ho to take a second look at the Treaty of Nanjing, and the Chinese negotiators had masterfully obfuscated up to this point. But now... The British laid their cards on the table and came up with a list of ten gimmies. This was what they were after. First, they wanted access to the China interior, not to be restricted to the treaty ports and coastal areas. But just the same, they wanted more treaty ports opened. They wanted to freely trade in opium with no restrictions, and all these internal transit duties, shipping goods from one place to another, they wanted them cancelled. And the China coast, from northern Jiangsu to western Guangdong, was infested with pirates. And they wanted the China government to be more proactive about doing something to get rid of this. They wanted Chinese emigration legalized and controlled. You know, their enterprises they had going on in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and elsewhere. They needed more Chinese to make their big dreams happen. And they insisted on keeping an ambassador in Beijing. No need for the emperor or anyone to see him face to face. All matters could be communicated through letters, but they wanted an ambassador in the capital. And after getting the runaround enough times, they insisted from here on out, all treaties or agreements, it was the English version that was the official one. And the missionaries were free to go spread the good word wherever and whenever. And last but not least, they demanded extraterritoriality. So they made their feelings clear, not spoiling for a fight yet. But the Qing authorities managed to continue to play rope-a-dope with them into 1855 and 1856, and huff and puff like they did, the British were getting nowhere. So to bring this matter to a head, it was decided to manufacture an incident and use this as a pretense to come out with their guns blazing. So this kind of strategy, it often did the trick. LBJ used the same strategy in the Gulf of Tonkin during the height of Beatlemania in 1964. And the Arrow Incident of October 8, 1856, was the result. The British, down in Guangzhou, tried to pull a fast one on the Chinese authorities, got caught, and this former pirate ship called the Arrow, flying the British flag as a kind of fig leaf, as well as the crew, mostly Chinese, 
it was seized. And the viceroy down there, Ye Ming Chun, called them out, and in this act, the fuse was lit for the Second Opium War. For being so obstinate and refusing to roll over to the British, this China official will be captured, shipped off to Kolkata in an act of extraordinary rendition, and in protest, Viceroy Ye Ming-chun will starve himself to death. This really put the Chinese government in a pickle. Now, besides all the revolts and internal strife plaguing the dynasty, they had to deal with this as well. Leading the charge for Britain was the newly appointed High Commissioner and Plenipotentiary in China, James Bruce, the 8th Earl of Elgin, also known affectionately as the guy who later on gave the okay to wreck the Summer Palace in Beijing. His dad was Thomas Bruce, the 7th Earl of Elgin, who greenlighted the pilfering of the so-called Elgin marbles from the Parthenon in Greece. So you could say cultural insensitivities ran in the family. I won't rehash the Second Opium War. Let's just say the fight was about as fair as a battle between Britain and the PRC would be if it happened today. God forbid. After blasting their way to victory and seizing the Daku forts in Tianjin in May 1858, with twisted arms and no doubt a great deal of humiliation and thoughts of revenge, the Qing representative the following month agreed to the Treaty of Tianjin with Britain, France, America, and Russia. And once those documents were signed, well, there were high fives all around, except in Beijing, of course. And May 16, 1858, by the way, Russia got the best deal of them all when they inked the Treaty of Aigun, the Aigun Tiaoyue, which, after it was finally ratified under duress, like any unequal treaty was, the Russians helped themselves to one of the biggest land grabs in world history. 300,000 square miles of land north of Heilongjiang in Manchuria and east of the Usuri River to the Pacific Ocean, where Vladivostok is today. 192 million acres of land. But it wasn't over yet. Despite the handshakes and agreements, the powerful men who controlled the heir of the Xianfeng Emperor as 1859 rolled around, decided to play a little hardball with the foreign powers. And in June 1859, war broke out again after troops led by Frederick Bruce, brother of James Bruce, the 8th Lord Elgin, were prohibited from meeting with the authorities in Beijing. When his contingent arrived in Tianjin, they were fired upon from the Chinese who had retaken the Daku forts, and the British were forced to make a hasty retreat. So the British and French, with their combined 17,000 troops, armed with the latest Armstrong rifles and breech-loading artillery, went on the attack. And they made fast work of their Chinese opponents and seized the city of Tianjin. And with the distance to Beijing being about the same as London to Southampton, they began their march on the capital. And when this happened, the Qing diplomats pulled out all the stops to negotiate a solution to this, but... Lord Elgin said no, and ordered the army to keep on marching on Beijing. And after their envoy, who approached the Qing authorities to work things out, after he was thrown in prison and tortured, well, that was the last straw. And battle broke out, and after a week of fighting, the Chinese side was forced to surrender. And that was when the Summer Palace got wrecked. So the Treaty of Tianjin finally got ratified, and the Convention of Beijing was also signed, November 1860, and the Second Opium War officially ended.
all the gimmies demanded by Britain, France, and Russia were signed off on. And one of these terms, incidentally, was the handing over to Britain of the Kowloon Peninsula from Jim Sajoy up to Boundary Street around where the Prince Edward MTR station is located. So the Second Opium War was finished, but the Qing government still had their hands full with the Taiping Rebellion and all these other revolts. All this is going on in the background while the foreign powers were looting and shooting. So I'll stress this again. It was a terrible time in China, and I'm sure there are plenty of CHP listeners living overseas whose ancestors left their homeland during this terrible period. Many made their way to all the hot spots around Southeast Asia, where fortunes were being made and no armies were marching through their villages. So I mentioned all this for one reason, and that is to highlight the impact this whole Second Opium War outcome had on the Taiping Rebellion. Once the Convention of Beijing was signed and the foreign powers had everything they sought out to achieve, the last thing they wanted to see was the demise of the Qing Dynasty. I mean, the way they saw it, it was going to be a lot more beneficial for them to prop up this decrepit, dying dynasty than take their chances with the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. So what we'll see as the 1860s dawned was the foreign powers hopping off that fence and joining up with the Qing allied forces lined up against the Taiping army. Now let me step back a bit and hearken back to April 1859 when something rather noteworthy happened within the Taiping movement. And this was the arrival of Hong Xiaotren's younger cousin and one of his original converts, together with Feng Yunshan, back in the very beginning, preaching on the streets of southern Guangdong. And this was Hong Rengan. So they split up early, and Hong Rengan, he wasn't part of everything that happened up on Thistle Mountain. He ended up fleeing to Hong Kong, where he continued his Christian studies and became an observer of Western ways and culture. He worked with James Legg there, assisting this renowned Scottish sinologist on his translations of the Chinese classics. And in the process, he received no small amount of insight and knowledge about Europeans and how they did things as opposed to China. After the Tianjin incident and the body blow it caused to the upper management of the movement, Hong Xiaotren got word to his cousin in Hong Kong and requested him to come up to Nanjing and play a role in the new leadership, which was now fractured and divided up between the kings and the heavenly capital and the generals out fighting the battles. So, early 1858, Hong Ren Gan begins heading in the direction of Nanjing, or Tianjin, if you prefer. And when he arrived the following April and was reunited with his cousin, he was appointed second in command, made a prince, the shield prince, and given a free hand to come up with a whole slew of reforms that, in theory, would transform the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom into something more recognizable and acceptable to the Westerners. Hong Rengan's proposed reforms were meant to whip the movement into shape and streamline the chain of command and the military, engaging in all kinds of infrastructural projects, including financial reforms. And then on the spiritual side, he tried to utilize his studies of Protestantism to turn the far-out and funky Christianity taught by Hong Xiaotren into something that was more 
recognizable to your average Protestant practitioner, Hongren Gan, in a very short time, became the acceptable face of the Taipings, the not-so-crazy one. Hong Xiaotren appointed him the movement's prime minister, and in May of 1859, Hongren Gan came up with his master plan contained in a document known as A New Treatise on Aids to Administration. Here, he laid out all the details about integrating the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom with the legal and banking reforms, the the infrastructural plans concerning transport, communications, uh, postal service, and spiritual matters that attempted to eradicate some of the more outrageous traditions and superstitions of the Taiping faithful. Hong Xiaotren gave these proposed reforms his vigorous endorsement and green-lighted the whole plan. But truthfully, even Kang Youwei and Liang Qichao had better luck 49 years later with their failed 1898 reforms than Hong Ren Gan did. In the end, none of the ideas, as much merit as they might have contained, ever got any traction. The military reforms were utterly ignored by the Taiping generals. And try as he did to diminish the dysfunctionality of the kingdom, Hong Ren Gan had very little success. Well, 1860, one could say the end of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was a foregone conclusion. Men like Zhang Guofan, Li Hongzhang, and Zhuo Zongtang were by now becoming deadly effective in fighting the rebels. The same couldn't be said for the Qing military's Green Standard Army. The Green Standard Army, the Liu Yingbing, they were a far cry from the times of the early Qing when they were quelling disturbances everywhere and racking up one victory after another. From February to May 1860, the Qing army tried to attack Nanjing and deliver some sort of blunt force trauma to the capital and force a surrender. But after the defeat of the Qing army group Jiangnan, the official Qing military force stepped aside, and from here on out, Tsung Guofan, now a viceroy, was appointed by the emperor to take over this job and put an end to these Taiping rebels. In short, this attempt to defeat the Taipings by seizing the capital it failed miserably. And the two generals who rose to the occasion to pick up the pieces following the Tianjin incident, Li Xuecheng and Chen Yucheng, using a brilliant strategy that Hoodwink the Qing army resulted not only in the defeat of the Qing army, but they were able to capture Ningbo and Hangzhou and wreck the cities in the process. And then they took the city of Suzhou next. Chen Yucheng, the Yingwang, or heroic prince, well, he had been part of Hong Xiaotren's gang since he was a teenager. He had these two big moles, one underneath each eye, and for this reason, he was called the Four-Eyed Dog, and seeing him up close used to freak people out. Together with Li Xiaocheng, they chalked up several important victories. Suzhou to Shanghai was about 110 kilometers. You could be there in 27 minutes by high-speed train. Driving would take you an hour. So you could see, it's pretty close, even for an army on the march. And this is where the foreign community, in so many words formally gave notice to the Taiping leadership to stay the heck away from Shanghai and don't come too close for comfort, a distance they gave of 30 miles. No more being neutral. 
Let me also quickly mention that in October 1860, the famous Southern Baptist missionary Issachar Roberts, he showed up in Tianjin, invited there by Hong Xiaotren himself, who Roberts had considered unworthy to be baptized 13 years before. I indicated last episode, you rarely saw Hong Xiaotren. Rarely did he ever make any appearances or greet people who came to see him for one reason or another. But he came out for Roberts, and they met only once. And Roberts got a nice, unfiltered look at what this whole heavenly kingdom was all about. He stuck around until January 1862. And once he left the heavenly capital and was back living on the coast... Well, anyone who stuck a microphone in his face got an airfall about his take on Hong Xiaotren and this whole wacky and blasphemous creed. He just dumped all over the heavenly king. Zhuo Zhongtang, beginning in 1860, was given command of the Xiang army. There were two, and his part of the Xiang army was known as the Chu army. He went on to lead the fight against the Taipings who were occupying his home province of Hunan. Not only did he use his home field advantage to push the Taipings out of Hunan, he did the same thing next door to the west of Hunan in Guangxi province. The Taipings, who were forced out of Hunan and Guangxi, ended up marching eastward towards Zhejiang province. Zhuo Zhongtang hammered them in Zhejiang as well. He was one of the true heroes for this period, and he still had several great and historic years ahead of him though it would take at least another century before he got that chicken dish named after him. Let me introduce the foreign contingent. Right about here, early 1860, in the spring, after Sujo had been taken, the foreign community, who had been taking a keen interest in this whole matter all along, now really started to have an uncomfortable feeling. Although no blood had been spilled yet, thanks to the Taiping Rebellion, Commerce along this richest stretch of the Yangtze River had been affected in a very bad way for a long time, too. And this was a major annoyance to those traders who depended on free access to this river to do business with all the markets along its north and south banks. So this is where Frederick Townsend Ward and the ever-victorious army enters the picture. Frederick T. Ward was an American from Salem, Massachusetts, who lived the life of a soldier of fortune. He came to China in 1857 as a first mate on some vessel and didn't stay long. Then he found himself in China again in 1860 and fought with some mercenaries eradicating pirates off the coast of Zhejiang. Through a series of events, Ward got noticed by local business interests in Shanghai. And these powerful elders in the 1860s Shanghai business community, well, they called on Ward to put together a force of two or three hundred fighters who would be allied with the Qing army and fight together against the Taiping rebels. And they would be paid by agents of the Qing, since the imperial palace didn't want their fingerprints on this whole affair, no matter how good or bad it turned out. Ward started recruiting at once, and this Newly assembled foreign army corps joined in the battle to keep Shanghai as free of Taiping disturbances as possible. After an abysmal start, Ward's forces had a good showing on the outskirts of Shanghai, just to the southwest in Songjiang, and then to the north of Songjiang was Qingpu, 
and there, Ward's outfit was looking to repeat their success. But at this battle, part of what became known as the Battle of Shanghai, 1861, early on saw Ward's army ambushed and solidly defeated by the Taipings. And it turned out to be a double disaster. In the thick of battle, Ward was shot in the jaw. And though it didn't kill him, it sure put a damper on the rest of his days fighting this fight. After a failed second attempt, Ward ended up lucky in his third attempt and defeated the Taipings at Qingpu in May 1861. And on your next flight taken off or landing at Pudong Airport, think of those 20,000 Taiping soldiers attacking that part of Shanghai in January 1861. They occupied Pudong for a bit, but were eventually pushed out. There's history everywhere in China. Let me quickly mention, in August, also in the year 1861, the Xianfeng Emperor died. 30 years old, and then we got to be emperor for 11 years. It's doubtful he ever had one peaceful night's sleep. Well, now he was gone, and the Empress Dowager Cixi and Prince Gong will carry out their little coup a few months later, and she will rule China in the name of Emperors Tongzhi and Guangxu, pretty much from this point forward until her death in 1908. After a slow start, the effectiveness and repute of Ward's militia rose sharply after relying less on foreign mercenary soldiers and taking advantage of the local expertise. Once Ward's army was transformed into a primarily Chinese fighting force, led and supplied by foreign resources, they were able to play a more front-and-center role in turning the tide against the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. By January of 1862, the Taipings, divided up into five separate armies, working in coordination, kept up the bloody battle to take Shanghai. Ward's Foreign Army Corps, a thousand men strong now, would assist in the defense. I guess Ward's finest hour was when Taiping General Li Xiucheng sent one of his 20,000 strong armies to attack Shanghai, only to be repelled and defeated by Ward's army at Songjiang. And it was at that time, in March 1862, that his fighting force was branded as the ever-victorious army, the EVA. And they were part of the Grand Alliance that saw more coordinated firepower fighting back against the Taipings, the Green Standard Army, Li Hongzhang's Chu Army, and troops led by the British and French forces defended the city. And these armies, all led by Zhang Guofan, Li Hongzhang, and Zhou Zongtang, were by now, 1860s, doing most of the heavy lifting. A lot of violence, blood, and gore still remained. You know, World War I was still 50 years in the future, but already these newest weapons of war were getting a test drive in the Taiping Rebellion. And though the weapons developed towards the end of the 19th century and just prior to World War I, packed a heavier punch, these new gun and cannon technologies being used against the rebels were frightening in their firepower and effectiveness on the field of battle. When I use the term mowed the soldiers down, that's what they literally did. This made a big difference by the end of 1862. Tsung Guofan couldn't have been happier. By this time, 
as the Taipings were being repelled battle after battle all throughout the summer of 1862 and into the fall. Tsung was no longer diving for dimes to raise funds to maintain his personal Xiang army. As viceroy of these three provinces, he was able to dip into that provincial kitty and pretty much fund the entire enterprise as he saw fit. By May of 1862, Tsung's Xiang army was just beginning to tie the noose that would strangle Tianjin as it slowly tightened around the capital. Then in September 1862, one of the Taiping armies, 80,000 strong, attacked Shanghai again and got within five kilometers of the city. And thanks to the bravery of the Qing allies holding the line, as well as their more powerful weapons, well, they were able to hold off the Taipings. And with the capital in Nanjing now imperiled by Xiang army troops, in November 1862, Hong Xiuquan called everyone back to the heavenly capital. After 16 months of trying to take Shanghai, it had proved too tough of a nut to crack. And not only that, all their hard-won gains in eastern Zhejiang province, occupied since prior to attacking Shanghai, well, those had been lost as well. And Frederick Townsend Ward wrote his name and that of the ever-victorious army into the history books for the string of victories he had in 1862. He was killed in action outside of Ningbo on September 22nd of that year. A lot's been written about him, but plenty of legends surround his true place in history. The Shanghai elites didn't give him the respect he deserved and found him a little too rough around the edges and unconventional. But in 1862, at least, he was on the front lines along with the other armies, slashing away and keeping Shanghai from falling into Taiping rebel hands. And also, just as an aside, during these 16 months while Shanghai was being fought over, the American Civil War was going at full tilt. Fort Sumter had been bombed April 12, 1861. You know, the Civil War had some indirect impact on British attitudes about ending this Taiping rebellion. Needless to say, while Union and Confederate soldiers were killing each other all over Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. Well, it disrupted the cotton trade profoundly, to say the least, especially when President Lincoln put that blockade in place. All those cotton textiles being woven in Lancashire came from the slave plantations of the Confederate states. The price of cotton skyrocketed, and the price of finished goods sold to China went up proportionately. And the Chinese buyers... You know, weren't writing too many purchase orders. The British lords of Shanghai knew, between the Yanks and their civil war, and all the damage done by the Taiping Navy's control of the waterways of commerce, they had to end this war. And next time we convene, we'll finish up the Taiping Rebellion and then maybe sift through the wreckage and assess the damage. Remember, come 1863... The Nian Rebellion was still going on. The Miao up in Guizhou were in the middle of their uprising that still had a decade to go. Yunnan, too, was up to its eyeballs with the Panthe Rebellion. In 1863, the Hui up in Shanxi will revolt. The third Hui Revolt. In 1862, over in Xinjiang, the Hui also had risen in rebellion. That one was called the Dungan Revolt that will last clear through to 1878 before 
General Tsong Tang snuffs out the last of the revolts. We looked at that as part of that 12-part history of Xinjiang series. The Hakkas and the Bundes, still going at it down in the Pearl River Delta region. They won't conclude until... That won't conclude until 1867. Each side was given as much as they were getting. And by the time the disturbance was quelled, both sides had lost around half a million people. So the Taiping Rebellion was winding down to a grisly end, but it ain't over yet. And I think we could squeeze one last episode out of this chapter of Chinese history. So let's put the bookmark in here, and I'll see you in another two weeks for what's already shaping up to be another exciting episode of the Taiping History Podcast.